Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and this is a very special one for me for more than a few reasons. This might be an all-time favorite right here, right up there when it comes to this podcast. I hope you enjoy it too. Antonio Michael Downing understands displacement. He was 11 when he moved to Canada from Trinidad after the death of his grandmother. He moved six times in high school, different cities each time, new guardians, new friends, and often the only black boy in town. Music is always there, and he takes on different personalities, ways of finding an identity, making meaning. He becomes Mike Danger, goes on tour opening for Liam Gallagher. He becomes John Orpheus, this larger-than-life dance hall pop artist. He becomes a lot of different things, including the one thing he wanted to avoid, a saga boy, a playboy always on the run, and he has to figure out how to find his way back. It's all there in his new memoir, Saga Boy, My Life of Blackness and Becoming. It's brilliant. I hope you read it. It's the best book I've read all year. This episode is also number 100 of the Story Untold podcast, and with Antonio having called Kitchener home, it's all the more fitting. Here's his story. You paint a picture in the book at the opening of Saga Boy of this schoolyard you go to and just maybe a short walk away from the school that you grew up going to, the New Grant Anglican School, there is yeah. this little shop of wonders. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you could find at the little shop of wonders. Oh, man. Okay. I might have to say it in Trini, though, because, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, yeah, like, so, the, I mean, the big thing was Polori. And Polori was great because, I mean, like I describe it in the book, it's this gold, fluffy golden ball that's like crunchy on the outside and like chewy on the inside. It's deep fried. You could get five for 25 cents. So it's like bang for the buck. Mm -hmm. And they would give it to you on this wa brown wax paper. And they would put some chutney on it or some tamarind sauce on it. And, and pretty much it didn't even have a flavor. It was just texture and the, and the heat. Mm. And then when you dipped it in the sauce, that's what gave you the flavor. So like mango chutney or sweet tamarind sauce. Oh, but like I say in the book, polori was my everything. Um, but also you could get like, like red mango, green mango. Um, these are all sort of pickled treats. You could get um, anchar, which is a Hindu, uh, an Indian, uh, East Indian dish. Um, that's one of the things people don't know about Trinidad. And I say that when and you got to know this when you're talking food of all the islands in the caribbean trinidad is is one third east indian so there's a massive population that the british brought in as indentured servants um after um basically after they abolished slavery and they needed uh, they needed more labor mm -hmm. and so to this day the two biggest ethnic groups are uh, african descendants Indian descendants and and the third biggest is are Douglas, which are a mix of the first two. <laughs> so yeah, so 
I grew up, you know, with, you know, one of the passages in the book is when I described Diwali, right? Um, my, and, and Ajit, um, who is the director of the audiobook, which by the way, is really fun. Like, I'm so like, cause I read the audiobook myself and as a vocalist and a performer, I, I, I'm pretty proud of it, but also you get to hear the accents, you get to hear me singing the songs. Um, so that little shop of wonders, that's, those would be the main things, but you could also, you could also get sometimes doubles mm -hmm. um, or bara as the, as the Indian folk call it. And that's like two fluffy patties with chana and curry chana and pepper sauce in between. Oh man, just, just delicious. You could get um, pickled plums, you could get uh, guava, you can just so much like we we're essentially in the middle of a rainforest, right? Unlimited rainfall, unlimited sunshine. So it's like it's like trees grow huge, the fruit grow huge. If you ever see a Caribbean um, avocado, we call it zabuka, and if you ever see it, it's as big as your head. And people go, "What is that?" And I go, "That's an avocado," and they go. No, it's not. That's way too big to be an avocado. And it's like, yeah, unlimited rainfall, trees grow big, fruits grow huge, insects grow massive. The things that eat the insects grow massive and the things that eat those, um, you just don't want to invite them home for dinner. You, you don't ever want to see them actually. So, 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 so that's how I grew up. Like processed sugar wasn't really a big thing. Like to this day, like processed sugar, I can't even stomach it. Um, I prefer salt, savory, because mostly most of the treats I had as a kid were were savory treats, hmm. right? So, so yeah, so that's what you'd find in the in the in the in the shop of wonders. But for me, it was all about polori because it was just so delicious. But you could also get so many for just for twenty five cents you could just like be in ecstasy for like half an hour. <laughs> I mean, I challenge any drug dealer to equal that <laughs> bang for the buck. <laughs> are these, are these like Timbit sized? Are they bigger than Timbit sized? Like how, how big I, is one? I, it's bigger than Timbit sized, but that's actually a pretty good comparison roughly mm. of the size of them. It's bigger than Timbits. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, um, but yeah, someone, it's amazing. You wouldn't believe how many people have either found a recipe and made polori or gone and, and bought some polori, found a place that sold them and gone and bought them because they're just like, the way you describe them, I have to have some. <laughs> and I'm like, get me some. Because <laughs> I don't know how to make them. <laughs> ah, yeah, yeah. So you've, you've given a good description already of, of uh, a little bit about what home was like in New Grant, but um, but if you yeah. could set the scene a little bit more for what that town was like, uh, being in the middle of the rainforest uh, amidst the abundance of fruits and vegetables around you, um, what was that? What was that place like, home? Um, Trinidad was like, man. I mean, for me, it's all about my grandmother, right? Like like for me, the main characters of my childhood 
when I learned to see the world were the bush of Trinidad, that bush that I describe. And if you add in, you know, the, the, the trees, millions of birds in squadrons just doing doing maneuvers <laughs> like a, a a full cacophony of a, a symphony of of fecundity like just growth and 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 just bursting with life everywhere like like tons of types of grasshoppers i i feel like i've seen every shade of brown every shade of green fruits and vegetables just bursting like wild pineapple, wild watermelon, like parakeets. I used to try to catch parakeets, um, which I described that in the book as well. Um, you know, snakes of all sizes and varieties, which terrified everyone, like big horned toads, like, like so you're living in this place that, that is just exploding with life. And, and, to, and that's sort of the landscape that formed me. So a lot of my life, when you read the book, you'll see that I'm, I'm always moving, I'm always changing, I'm always reshaping things. And that's kind of how the, 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 rain, the new grant was in Trinidad. It was like always changing. Like the mango tree doesn't say last year we had mango, this year we not gonna have mango. It's like every year is mango, it's fresh mango every year. So I'm that mango tree. But Really, that when you take away the landscape, it's all about my grandmother. I mean, she taught me two things, how to sing and how to, and how to read, how to love words mm. and not just read anything, how to read like the inspirational parts of the Bible that she, her eyes were too bad to see. So I became her eyes. And she taught me to read so I could read her, you know, psalms, which are songs, right? They're essentially lyrics, um, Proverbs, Song of Solomon. So very evocative, poetic parts of the Bible, but also put together by the greatest foremost scholars King James could find in England at, in England at the time. So the blueprint of our language that we use and how it's written is coded into that book that I learned to read on at three and a half. And then she was always singing. She was always singing. It was always a song like, you know, you just, you just wake up in the morning and she'd be like, do not dismay whatever betide you. God will take care of you through every day. You know, and she's just singing and mm -hmm. you're just and you're just waking up to the to the song of the bush and her song is kind of like Prospero in in the Tempest, just kind of conducting this symphony of 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 life. And so I learned that at an early age and, and probably the most the most defining thing you could think of. And I mean, to this day, I'm a singer and I'm a writer. Um, but to this day, the most defining thing has been, you know, like, for example, my first memory is of me making up a, a little speech of the difference between want and need. And I just walk around arguing both sides of the issue. My grandma's like, boy, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, and then I just did it for her. And then she like would bring me, she would trot me out in front of neighbors so that I could recite this speech. And so 
that is really there in the little seed, the germ of my life. Like I, I compose and I perform. And, mm -hmm. and my life has been ruled by these two, um, these two spheres, but they descend directly from, from the bush, from the rainforest as channeled through my grandmother. Mm. And, and really that's, you know, that's what I see when I look back. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So in, in the bush, it's you and your grandmother and your brother junior. Yes, sir. Plays quite a role in those early years too. Could you tell me a little bit about, about Junior and and how you saw him in your you know your five year old six year old eyes? I mean, I loved him. It's like when we were kids, we were about the same size. People would think we're twins, um, and he was just amazing. Like to me, because he would he was three years older, so he would do everything a couple years before I did it. But when we were little, we were also partners in crime. So before he got big enough to kind of go off on his own, we would spend a lot of time, like our favorite activities were basically play acting. So we would imitate people, mostly preachers that we saw on Sunday, in, in Sunday when we went to church. And so we would practice, we would make up, like we really understood the anatomy of a good sermon, right? We'd be like, we'd be very like, he would be the deacon or I would be the deacon and one of, and whoever was playing preacher would be, we've come here today to quote the word of God and, and we'd like you to turn in your Bible to, uh, and, then, and then one of us would be in the back doing like sort of this, uh, when the old people sang, they would all sort of, they wouldn't really enunciate. So it would just be this huge sort of like, like this massive, like single voice that was kind of humming, saying words, but not really words. So, and then in between, for people that couldn't read, one of the deacons would call out the words, right? Mm. <laughs> you know, so, so if you're doing a hymn, like say we we're doing, so this is me and Junior, this is Junior and I doing a typical performance. So say we're, um, we're doing, uh, I don't know, what's the hymn? What's a good one? How great thou art. Um, so it'd be like, oh Lord, my, oh Lord, my God. Could you turn with me to uh, the book of John, chapter one, verse one? And an awesome wonder. Consider all the works thy hands have made. And the, and the, and the, and the verse says, in the beginning, was the word and the word was with <laughs> and, and we're just doing this and then of course it crescendos and the best part is you get to do what we call catching power so catching power literally but we say catching power and 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 which is a great phrase right like what a like what an immense um I mean, an, an immense, like, almost like, like Dostoevsky or Nikolai Gogol would love this phrase, uh, catching power. <laughs> like you're literally catching it out of the end, it, which means you just freak out and you speak in tongues and you roll on the ground, which as children is an immensely fun game to play, <laughs> despite what your beliefs are about Christianity. So 
That's what Junior and I would do. And we would play pranks. One time we were dressed up as, because uh, we there was a cemetery at the top of our street and we were the first house after the cemetery on the left. So we would often sneak in the cemetery and kind of dress up as as if we were like like in scary clothes and we'd come out um of the little the little cross in the cemetery we'd come out of the cemetery yelling and roar and 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 people were afraid of of what we call jumbi which is a, a west african word that's another shocking thing as a, as a lover of language how many different languages were part of what we spoke in Trinidad? For example, mm -hmm. many, many Yoruba words were part of my everyday dialect. And I had no idea until later on, I found out there's some great videos on YouTube about how Caribbean words are connected to African words, to West African words. Um, but of course the religion as well, there were people called Shango Baptists um, that I grew up around and they're, they're notorious for that area that I came from. And Shango is of course the, the Orisha, the God in West Africa of, of, uh, lightning and thunder. So you have this, like, that's a whole other story, but the point is junior and I would be, we would get into so many shenanigans, um, in so many ways. And people were terrified of what we call Jumbi because a very famous Trinidadian tradition is telling like Jumbi stories or, or like, or, or basically like telling tales, scary stories to each other and the power would frequently <laughs> go out. So you would tell these scary stories and grown ass men would be, would hear these stories and they would have them in their heads. So they would be scared walking through a cemetery and then us kids would just jump out and go, <laughs> and they were just like, it was very entertaining. So Junior and I, he was to me and always will be just a lion, just the bravest person that I knew because he always did everything before I even knew what it was, including as he got older, he was the first time I saw someone make out with a girl or the first time like like he would go traveling like my grandmother would send him on errands as he got bigger and I would get to tag along but he would be like he would be like a big man and and I was so jealous I was so jealous but I was also um in awe of him in awe of him you know so mm -hmm. that's a lot of our relationship but it it changed like when we're younger we're pretty much the same size and neither of us has much autonomy, but as he gets older, he starts doing things where I can't follow. And that's a big theme in the book because that never stops. That never stops. He continues to do things where I can't follow, even to the point where I decide, well, I don't wanna go there, right? And, and that separation, the closeness of us as children mm -hmm. and the separation of us as adults is part of the story of the book as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, for sure. Uh, definitely want to talk more about, because it's a coming-of-age story uh, that you've written here of, of yeah. sorts, you know, yeah. of, of becoming and of unbecoming and of belonging and unbelonging, um, right. of finding place. Um, what did you, at that age, think you would become one day? What did you want to become, you know, when you were a boy? Who did you think you would be? 
Yeah, I, no idea. Because we didn't have any role models for anything, right? So the most I could hope for, for what I could see was, okay, I knew some, I knew a lot of preachers. That's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't know any therapists or firemen or, or soldiers, or I guess my cousin, my uncle Boise was a shop owner. His son, Steve was a policeman, but he lived way up in the North in Port of Spain. So I didn't really know him. So I didn't really have like those. And we, we had sort of Trinidad TV with two channels at the time. Right. So it wasn't like we were seeing lots of things. I saw Sesame street. Um, so really that was it and the Muppet show. Right. So that was all I really had as far as fuel for the imagination. Um, really my life when I look at it was always very much internal very much internal because there was so much time and space by myself and I read so much I which was my main way of feeding my my thoughts and my feelings but it was like okay well not gonna be King Solomon um I'm not gonna be Sir Francis Drake (laughs) (laughs) you know I'm not gonna be Odysseus but in a way those were kind of the things that formed my mind in those times. Like if you could take a kid, a little British school kid, which was basically what I was, it was colonial empire. So, you know, we got the little British school reader book, which I I managed to get like almost all the books I read as a kid. When I went to school, I managed to buy them on Amazon as research for Saga Boy. So I'm, I'm very excited about that. But when I read it, what I see is there's no there's no shock that I that I love Shakespeare and, and the Odyssey and that and that I, I, you know, and that I live in that world of literature because at a very young age, they fed us that. So I already started reading the Bible. And so I've already got this handle on kind of King James and the English language of that period. And, and those stories, which are so grand and epic. And, you know, I feel like Saga Boy has a little bit of that, right? It's kind of like, a, like you know, it gives you that, that, that sort of grand epic scale and scope and the characters take on this life that, you know, it's, it's my grandmother, like that's, that's who, that's who she is. But if you, when I, my memories of her, because that's what I'm reading is the Bible and, and Shakespeare and, and Homer and translation and like all of these things, it's like, to me, she was, you already idolize your, your, the big people when you're little. But to me, I channeled it through that literature and that language. And so I, I, I just mythologized her. And I think you feel that in Saga Boy. But I didn't want to be anything. There was nothing I ever thought, hey, I'm going to be this or that. I, I didn't even understand what that meant. And I didn't have a mom and dad there to model some kind of like, well, son, you know, you can be this or that, or don't be this because that's not good. I didn't have that. I was just kind of like, it's just me, the bush, my brother, this old lady who's always singing and reading her Bible and, and 
and <laughs> and the queen, <laughs> the queen and all her Anglican hymns and her and her uh, schoolboy uniforms. That's um, that's what formed me. And so, you know, yeah, I I don't I I don't think and and maybe and I, I Martin, as we're saying this, I'm as I'm saying this, and you ask me this question, which no one ever has. I think to myself, hmm. Maybe that explains your adult life because I've never actually, because <laughs> I've never in my adult life, it's been a great mystery. Um, I, and I'll tell you this, you know, the things that motivate most people, Martin, um, have never worked on me. Like most people, you know, money, sex, love, status, validation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If, if you were, most people around me thought of me as a mystery because often I would have choices to choose those things that they would easily choose and I would choose something else. And in my head, I've always had what I think of as a mission. And that mission may have been a band at a particular time or a book or a different thing, but actually it's all one thing, which is just a sense of purpose. And I think that's probably what I got from living in, from the, all those combinations of factors, right? Because it's like, there aren't any boring days in the Bible. It's like, there's a plague or, you know, <laughs> God wants you to kill your son. You know, <laughs> you got a bunch of concubines, <laughs> you know, it's like, or you're doing some miracles, you're walking on water, like there aren't any boring days. And, 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 you know, neither is there in the Odyssey, neither is there in Shakespeare. And, and in a large way, in a lot of ways, these are the people who raised me. The figures in, like, in the Bible and in, in the Odyssey and, and so on. Yeah, like, that's why I start the book with the line, the queen designed my brain, because these are, I see them all as coming from the queen, from the British crown, because King James made the Bible and all the hymns my grandma sang were Anglican and, and the school I went to was an Anglican school. Mm -hmm. You know, literally, I think I say this in the book, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Literally, the word was with God because the only books there were were church books or school books, which was a church school. Mm -hmm. So, so that's what shaped me. And so I wasn't shaped to be anything other than what I am. Like I can't make, I, I'm not motivated by money or validation or, I mean, all love or sex, all of these are great things to have. Don't get me wrong. I, I, I'm not, it's not like I'm saying no to them, but whenever in my life it's come down to, Hey, there's, there's the mission, there's your purpose. And there's this other thing. I always choose the purpose, always, like without fail. And that's why my friends look at me and they go, what is wrong with you? Someone just offered you this great paying job. You know, you could be set, you could, you know, raise a family. And I'm just like, no, no. Like my, my, the story of my life that I'm writing always involves me waking up inspired. And if I, you know, and so when you think about what I wanted to be as a kid, I mean, that's what my childhood made me when I think about it. I've never actually thought about it till now, as you asked me, but 
it, when you look at the childhood I had, like I couldn't see me just settling down into sort of this one type of career or something that didn't involve the imagination or stories or constant change and growth. You mm. know, that's these are these are the things that I think I was bred to um to to crave. Like the rainforest, the constant change. Yeah. Yeah. And growth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I didn't even realize that as I was writing until I started writing. Like if you read that first that first sort of section, the first act of the book, there's my grandmother and there's the bush. Those are the ever present characters of that movement of the of the book. And and I would say that those two things more than any things in my life are what formed me. You know, child child development psych psychologists tell us by the time we're seven, I mean, between genetics and what and what happens in those seven years, your emotional payoffs are kind of formed and dialed in. You might find different ways to get those things, but those are the things you're going to want. And and so for me, it seems very plain. I I wanted to be those kids in 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 the storybooks. I wanted mm. to be those people. I wanted to live those lives of grand adventure and. You know, I don't think I have, but you know, then again, the plot of Saga Boy, when you read what what my life has been, it reads like just the most insane adventure. Mm -hmm. So if, I think, <laughs> uh, yeah, I I think uh, well, I think that's the beauty of, I think you can take anyone's life, and depending on how you write it and how you tell that story, mm -hmm. um, yeah. you can. I think everyone has a, a an amazing story within them to tell. You could tell the most fascinating story about anyone's life, uh, or you could tell a very boring story about anyone's life too. Yeah, uh, I mean, I I think there aren't any boring topics. There 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 are just boring writers, really. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I believe that, and that um, you know, I've read incredible stories about. Once I read a story about snow melting. 2,000 mm -hmm. words on snow melting, which should be like paint drying or grass growing, <laughs> boring, right? No, absolutely riveting. And then I've read people like we've all seen the, the terrible Alexander the Great um, movie, right? I don't know if you've seen I it, haven't but seen I that love one. history. No. <laughs> so I didn't watch it with Colin Farrell. And it's like, how can you take the most, the craziest, most adventurous life and make it a boring, <laughs> make it the most boring three hours of my life? How did you do that? So it's like, it's how you tell it. You're right. And, and I guess I tell, I told it the way I told it in this biblical epic poem kind of way, because that's how my brain works. Hmm. So if, if, you know, in your early years, your grandmother and the bush exist as these primary figures, um, your both your mother and father sort of exist as well, but but their their presence is felt in the absence uh, of where. Yeah. They are. Uh, yeah. They, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Could you talk a bit about how they existed in your mind at the time, whether in your mind or in your imagination or just you know, how you saw or related to them as a boy in, in Trinidad mm -hmm. living with your grandmother. Yeah, I mean, like you said, like, 
they were they were only important in in of the fact that they weren't there and for me it's like when you're a kid you don't know that something's missing because you don't know anything else i was like well my grandma is here she's cool she does like i'm happy <laughs> you know i don't need anything else um but then of course other kids had mother and father and so they would be like, hey, where's your mom? Where's your dad? I'm like, well, I don't know. Where is my mom and dad? And and to me, they existed like a, like like a rumor, you know, like a like a wisp of smoke that kind of blew through my childhood, where it's kind of like you would hear, especially my dad, because I grew up on the same street he grew up on the same one town village. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of like the old folks would look at me and double take because they're like, oh, uh huh, you look just like him. And I didn't know anything. All I knew was, what did I know? I know that he was a smart man. So he was he was a clever fellow. I knew that he had trouble with the law. He was a criminal. I knew that he left for Canada and never came back. That's all I really knew about him. And my mom, I would see her from time to time, but it would be very strange because I would just be like, I would be like, well, who is this person? Like I could conceptually understand that she was my mother, but what does that mean when you're seven years old? It's like, it's like, and you've never actually spent time with her. It's kind of like, okay, so, I get that you're my mother, but it actually, I don't know what that actually means because I've never had a mother. And then she leaves and then it's like, oh, okay. And then you don't see her for a year or two. And and then, and it's kind of like, okay, well, you know, everything's, everything's fine. And that's a, that's a, you know, in hindsight, that's really strange and really painful to think of. But, but in actual truth, for me, it was kind of like, it was kind of just an anomaly of being a child. Like you, you can't miss something you never had. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Whereas it, with my dad, it was a little different because we would get pictures of him and he would have, he would be in a suit with Jerry curls. And I'd be like, my dad looks like Michael Jackson. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> like, I'd just be like, I, he just looked like, like we would think everything from North, from America which included Canada in our minds, but everything from America was, was perfect. And everyone here was rich and, and, and ate exotic fruits like apples. And <laughs> like, like that's how, you know, in actuality, we were the ones eating the exotic fruit, but, you know, but that was our normal. So to us, like apples and pears, I was like, if I ever get on a plane, the first thing I'm going to do is ask for an apple, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> to me, that was like, so that, that was how it was. And my dad was part of that world. So that gave my dad this magical hue where, where not only did I, would I catch glimpses of him and how people would react to me, or I would overhear a little snatch snippet of this or that. But then like my stepmom would send pictures of him and my and my and my half brother's back and i would be like ooh like 
he's part of that world, that magic world that lives in on 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 the TV on Sesame Street. Like my dad is part of that world, and that would just give you the sense of like it was magic. It was something impossible. It was like it was like you know where I live. If you saw a white person, like that'd be like seeing a unicorn. Like you would be like like kids would run after you and point at you. That's what would happen because it's so rare. So, and here is my dad married to a white woman having a jerry curl. And I was like, well, he's rich and he's famous and he eats apples, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> do you, do you remember your first apple? I don't. <laughs> But I think I feel like it was a red delicious and it was when I was in North Northwestern Ontario. Mm. I probably loved it. And pears. To this day, I love apples and pears, actually. Mm. I do not believe that they are magical fruit anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but I do enjoy them. <laughs> so so if your father exists as um, this person you see through photographs, postcards, living in Canada, and you have this idea of what Canada is, a land where everyone is rich, you know, the land of milk and honey, so to speak. Then, you know, 11 years old, you end up flying to Canada because your grandmother passes and you're off to mm -hmm. live with your Auntie Joan. Totally different world from Trinidad especially being thrust into the very different forests of, of Wabagoon, of Northern Ontario. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what was your first impression, you know, of, of having that image of what Canada was to then what, what you saw? Yeah, it was very different. We were not prepared for that. Um, it was sh like, I feel like using words like shocked and, and, flabbergasted or or very different you know it's like we didn't even have scales to measure what had happened to us it was like a kind of cosmic whiplash like almost literally we went to sleep in a rainforest and woke up in a blizzard like almost literally like it was there was a few hours in between but that's kind of how it went mm -hmm. and and like, how would you describe being like, you know, being a baby in a in your mother's stomach and then being born into a whole other world? And it's like all the parameters have changed. Everything you thought you knew about life is different. The people are different. The the weather and we moved in in the middle of December, which in northern Ontario is like, I mean, it's a blizzard like you know, the wind is howling over Lake Wabagoon. Wolf packs are, are drifting through the tree line. There's bears at the dump, <laughs> you know, like there's icicles. Do you know what a shock it was, Martin? Icicles? Think about it. <laughs> we had never seen ice outside of a freezer that stayed ice, <laughs> never seen it. So I would stare at icicles. I would literally, I would be like, yo, is it ever gonna melt? <laughs> and like, it was like a source of fascination. And the way people talk is I was always this kid who listened really closely to the music and words and the music and language. And so suddenly it was like, 
everything was different and you had to like i would practice talking canadian all the time you know and there there's still funny times where i still say certain things in trinity ways to this day to this day actually reading the audiobook there are a couple words where i would just continuously pronounce them in the trinity way when it wasn't appropriate and and i was just like i'm sorry i don't know how it how it stays so long so yeah it was like and just people right like indigenous people and the anishinaabe and and seeing all those strange letters and all those strange drawings like like a bear in the in the belly of a muskie and and just like these the iconography was like whoa what is happening and then it's like white people i mean it was like that's shocking can you imagine if you've never seen been around white people it's like whoa you can see their veins son you can see their <laughs> veins they have different color eyes like they have eyes like the sky they have eyes that are like the color of of grass they like like never seen that right so for us it was just and and it was just like wow you can imagine it was a tsunami of new stimuli and all the fundamental conclusions about how the world work which is forming in my little 11 year old brain suddenly it's like nope nope son stop that nope you're going to have to think again and that was i i call that my if i were a comic book superhero that would be my 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 creation story mm. that would be the moment where i was truly born into the world because suddenly everything that i i thought made like think about it martin if you think about who you are and what makes up who you are you probably think about like your family you probably think about um you know maybe the street you grew up on or the school you went to or your hometown kw what up or or and and all of that was gone or the language you speak or the food you ate you know i don't you know like whatever and all of that was gone every single thing i could use to have to anchor myself or to find my bearings as a human being were gone and and i was still there and that's a re that was a really profound lesson for me because it forced me to look inside for for that definition of who am i it forced me to look inside which was really led to me becoming an artist because at the end of the day i realized that all the things that were external could be taken away and therefore i needed something that was internal because i was the only thing that remained after all of that my grandma's gone trinidad's gone the little streets gone the jungles gone the bushes gone the language we speak is gone the shop with the polori is gone you know the anglican hymnal is gone like the way people look is gone the way the weather behave is gone like everything and so i think from that point on and i was always a very independent kid but i think from that point on after i had had a few years of just 
this spasmic, well, not a few years. I pretty much went from, I, I went to six high schools from that point on. Mm-hmm. I landed in Wabagoon and that was just the beginning. Um, they skipped me ahead two grades. So I was, um, I was 12 years old in grade nine and I was little and, and I was still like, my head was still half in the rainforest, half in Trinidad. And, and still trying to figure out those assumptions. And then, and then it changed. Like it was Dryden, Sioux Lookout, Newmarket, Aurora, Scarborough, Thunder Bay, New York City, Cambridge. And that's where I finished high school. Mm-hmm. And, and so I went for, I had more parents, more sets of guardians and more high schools than I had years in high school. And by the time I came out of that, I think I had hit this point where I where I was only gonna ever look inside myself for the answer to the question, who am I? Hmm. I was only gonna look inside myself for it because that's what I held on to. And in that time, I managed to learn how to play basketball, I learned how to play music, I, I was writing, I was reading a lot. I was, the inner world was where I would go when things fell apart and they fell apart early and often. Hmm. Um, But whenever they did, I would go back to, you know, the things my grandmother taught me, singing songs and words, Hmm. because she was using those psalms to lift herself up, to translate the difficulty of life into, to give it meaning. Hmm. is what she was using those things for. And so I would, I just fell back on that playbook. And, and the more I fell back on that, the more it was kind of like, well, you know, where else is there to be? Because hmm. in my mind, I was drowning. I was lost. I, I didn't have any answers to any of the questions that really matter. So I couldn't make decisions. Like, you know, after university, all my friends are like, hey, Let's, you know, let's get the mortgage, the marriage, the minivan. Yes, the three M's of, of the three M's that precede midlife crisis. <laughs> um, and, 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 and I couldn't, I didn't even have a concept of what that felt like or why you would do that or wh- what, what are you trying to achieve with that or, 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 and mostly I was like, I'm still drowning. How can I take care of someone else? I'm still drowning. I don't know anything about myself or about life. And I think making art then became a way of going, hey, here's what's going on in my head and in my heart, but I'm too close to it to understand it. So I'm going to make something so that some of that that's inside of me can be outside of me. And now I have distance. Mm. Now I have perspective. So perhaps now I can look at it and maybe comprehend it in a way, you know, and, and I mean, Saga Boy is definitely that, but, you know, so is all the albums I've made and, and, and Molasses prior and, and, you know, the movies that I've been involved in and, you know, everything that I've done has been an attempt to put the pieces back together from that what happened to me when I was 11. Mm-hmm. And really, it was just like this, this life shattering experience. 
and and assembly reassembling the pieces has kind of been the life mission you know and i only recently feel like okay i think i might have a handle on it hmm. i think i might have a handle on it but of course i mean it's this for me is 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 a life purpose kind of thing like there's no it, it never ends no <laughs> you know? for each of us hopefully yeah. Hopefully you get better at it, but um, but it never ends. So there's more books and more music and more more everything to come. Mm. You know, it it struck me in as you're talking that uh, as I think about Saga Boy, so much of what you're describing is, uh, and especially in the years from arriving in Wabagoon onward, is looking for an answer to the question of who am I. Mm-hmm. And I think you you look for that in different ways throughout. You have these different, and you have dif- these different selves that um, mm-hmm. that you craft and curate, uh, both in terms of just arriving in a new city and becoming someone else because you have totally different people around you who don't have any past experience with Tony or with Michael or or so on. Um, Mm-hmm. And because of uh, the art uh, and, and music and taking on and adopting different personas. Um, there's this yeah. moment in the book where a friend of yours from high school, Benfoot, you know, asks you how many Tonys of you are there. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and it felt like a really ben poignant Foot. moment, you know. Um, yeah. what, do you, what do you think you were looking for in becoming someone new each of those times? Yeah, I think... I think, you know, at the time, I would think it was probably, I mean, and let, and if I'm to break it down, I'm say like, first and foremost, like, um, you know, it's, it's a play acting was something that Junior and I did when we were kids, right? Like, it was always something that was part of our lives. But I think most of us when we're kids we play act and we make things up and we make up stories and for me it was just i still i did that so much and i and it gave so much to me that i kept doing it because it became a way for me to figure myself out so again like it's kind of like when you create the thing outside of you then you can understand it differently Mm. than when it's inside of you and so for me that's what i saw what i saw is like is essentially what an actor does right like i saw you know i was listening to blues musicians and i started listening to buddy guy and 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 bb king and and you know and i was always listening to hip-hop but but I started getting into blues and soul. And when I was into that, I was just like, I feel what they're saying, but it's like, you can't just, for me, I think, I think what it is, it's no different than, I think what the names are all about is, is about, you know, a name is just a word for a thing, right? And a word is just a name for a thing. So really what we're talking about is that that verse john chapter one verse one in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god so if you were trying to do something like god just said let there be light and there was light that's the story right so if you're trying to do something you needed the word right 
you needed the right name. And, and, and you know this, right? Cause you've covered hip hop quite a bit. Like, you know, you got your government name but then you got your hip hop name. And I'm like, I came up in the nineties listening to hip hop. I, I used to like, I wore out Illmatic like twice. And then when I was going by the tape a third time, I realized I'd memorized the entire tape. So I didn't need it. I could literally just do Illmatic in my head or out loud and entertain myself. But you know, Nas went from Nas to Nasty Nas mm -hmm. to Nas Escobar mm -hmm. to, uh, you know, to the letter Nasty N. Yeah. Jones, yeah. You know, and Puff Daddy went from Puff Daddy to Puffy to P. Diddy, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Like, like, it's a common thing, especially as if you're into hip hop to change names, right? To have aliases, to keep yourself, to hide certain parts of yourself, but also to bring out certain parts of yourself. It's also a common thing with another big influence on me, which is comic books. When I was a kid, Junior would buy all the comic books because he wanted to collect them. And I, of course, had to read everything that had words and stories in it. Mm. So I would open his collector's comics and read them, get them all greasy. But the comic books, of course, no superhero has their, their birth name, right? right? You always have this whole new name, right? And, and the name becomes this kind of word of power that encapsulates who you are in this aspect, right? Who's Logan? Logan is Wolverine. Are they one and the same? Yes. Are they totally different? Yes. Right? Who's Superman? Who's Kal-El? Well, are they the same person? Yeah. But are they the same? No. And so when you think about it, though, on a human level, we're always changing personalities and, and becoming somewhere, someone else. Like, just think about it. When, back when, before pre-COVID and one more, once more to come, if you were going to work, you would dress a certain way, talk a certain way, you would relate to people a certain way. If, if you then were going out for a night on the town with your friends, you would dress a different way, talk a different way, relate to them a different way. If you saw someone from your work out on the town, you might, you might not recognize who they are. Mm -hmm. Right. And now if you're going to like a, a gathering of your extended family for a holiday or a get, get together or or, you know, some sort of family get together. Now, you're probably going to dress a little bit different and you're going to hold yourself a little bit differently. So we're always changing person clothes and changing personality with our clothes. For me, it was just natural to give that a name because it was because of the hip hop and the comic book sort of like foundations of myself. I was like, and to me it was fun because it was like, yo, you're gonna become this whole new person and this person's a superhero. And, and so it was a way to access part of myself I couldn't access because why do we dress up anyway, right? Why do we dress appropriately for a particular situation? Because by doing that, it makes us comfortable in that situation so we can hold ourselves the way we want to in that situation. So for me, it was like, okay, Gen Militia, it's like, well, 
I wanted a punk, I wanted a name that sounded punk and, and, but also hip hop, cause that was the band and I was the lead singer. And, and I wore army jackets with like fatigues on them and, and band patches on them. And, and, and I would do a dance with, that would be like, like public enemies S1W where they, they like dance march. Mm. I would do that. Like I had the whole thing, but, and, and so I call myself Mike danger because it's Mike D, but also uh, uh, it's Shakespeare, right? Shakespeare says in Julius Caesar, Julius Caesar, who's like the original battle rapper, <laughs> he says, danger knows full well that I am more dangerous than he. And I said, yeah, that's some, yo, if, if KRS had them bars, he, you know, <laughs> he might, Queens might've took one from the Bronx. <laughs> so, so for me, it's like, for me, it's like, I, that's how I conceived it. And so now, you have this meaning and you have this depth and you have this resonance. And now when I inhabit that space, now I'm not just me. I'm not just Antonio Michael Downing. I'm Mike Danger. Mike Danger is a superhero. Mike Danger is like Caesar, right? Caesar was undefeated until, until his own people had to kill him because he was just, he couldn't be defeated. I mean, mm. what's more comic book superhero than that? And, and so by naming me, by renaming me, it's almost like a rechristening. And, and what it allows you to do is access these parts of yourself that you couldn't otherwise, which for me was an escape because a lot of times in my life, I didn't feel very good about being myself. I was an immigrant. I was like, I didn't have parents really. I was an orphan. I was an immigrant. I had really few things going for me other than the fact that I was pretty good in school and and I had a kind of a, a a catalytic kind of energy around me where I could change things so people liked being around me but also I could make something happen and so that created more energy around myself but if I but that's it that's it like I really really if you were a parent of a of a of some of a young girl and she brought me home which happened many a time you would be disappointed which mm. happened many a time <laughs> right <laughs> like i was kind of like a lost puppy so it, wouldn't you want to go from a lost puppy to a superhero with a lineage that goes back to julius caesar mm. and and the clash and the sex pistols because they were important they weren't nobody they weren't lost puppies they were strong. And so that's what it's about. Those parts of ourselves that we can't access without, you know, putting a mask on or putting on the clothes, so to speak. What what do you think it is about that? Why can't we access those parts of ourselves? Because I mean, I think I think we're just not supposed to, right? Like our lives have modes and 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 you know, there's a vibe that we're trying to access when we go to church or, mm -hmm. or, or temple or whatever we go to, mm -hmm. or, you know, there's a vibe we try to access when we go to a concert. There's a vibe that we access when we go to work, right? And, and I think it's always been the case that, that we, have, we have these things very segmented, right? But then for me, 
well, there's a whole lot of me that that wasn't made in Canada. There's a whole lot of me that plugs into a legacy that goes way before Canada, way before Trinidad, way before America, way before hip hop. And that's part of me. Which is why Audre Lorde says poetry is not a, a luxury, right? It's a necessity. Mm. Because so much of our lives have been erased, right? So much of our histories have been erased. I grew up in that little town. I told you, if we saw a white person, it would be like seeing a unicorn. Except when I went to school and I opened my book, I saw mad white people. I saw the queen looking down at me from the picture in the schoolroom. I opened my little red book and I saw like all of these, the history of Europe. There, there was not one Yoruba word in that or one word from Hindustan or Punjab or you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. that's where we were from. That's where our bodies were from. But, but we were completely erased from the education that we were given. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and then I came to Canada and it's like, I'm completely erased from here too. And that was the one consistent, right? Cause I came from Canada. I came from Trinidad where Queen Elizabeth was sitting at the wall, the only white face presiding over the whole room. And I came to Canada and I went in Sulaco, which as we discussed, Northern Ontario, totally different, right? Except I went to Queen Elizabeth District High School in Sulacout. <laughs> so there is so it's totally different, mm -hmm. but there's one very strong consistency there. Mm -hmm. And that's why I needed to access those parts of myself because they had been deleted and erased. Like even to this day, there's a huge push in, in America right now to legislate that you can't teach the history of slavery in schools. Mm. Right. Yeah. And think about that. That's that's like your memory. If if I said to you, you know what, Martin, I'm going to delete, you know, a whole big part of your memory, just going to delete it like we we you know, you would not be fit for you would have you would have a personality disorder, basically. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's what I feel is going on with me. Like I I feel like to be. Uh, a black person in in North America is to be in conversation with this world that that is is basically trying to delete you from you knowing yourself. It's basically trying to give you a personality disorder, right? Because you can you know because you can walk down streets that you have connections to, and you can talk to your family, and you can connect the genealogy, go back over to the old country, like. I know so many people and I love that. I talk to so many of my friends that have family in Czech and family in Germany and family in like Chachi, who's one of my friends from right. um, in, in the book, you know, he can trace his family back all the way back to, to Germany, like, like a whole bunch of, you know, whole bunch of generations. And it's like, for us, it's like, you can't do that. But the history is in your blood. And so poetry, art, music, literature, performance, dance, these are tools to unlock that, those stories that are inside of you.
right? Like those stories are in our bodies. So we want to unlock them. And, but even if you, you're not part of that legacy, it's the same thing for you. It's the same thing for everyone. We have stories that are locked inside us that are dying to come out and, and art and the mask. The mask is how we unleash it because, you know, like, like Oscar Wilde is the quote at the beginning of my book. He's not a black guy. He mm -hmm. said this, he's the one who said it. Give me a mask and give him a mask and he'll show you the truth. Mm -hmm. So this isn't a, a, an immigrant thing or a black and white thing. This is a, a human thing. We have all these trap stories within us. And, and that's why we need to unleash them. We need to unleash them to reconnect with who we are. Mm. Mm. I feel like there's a lot of places uh, that that can go. And I almost just want to like sit on that for a second uh, to <laughs> yeah. think about that. But I think you're absolutely right. Just how there are these stories within us that it often takes art to, to release, to find an opening for. I'm thinking of, of one in particular in your book and, and I want to uh, thank you for your courage in sharing it in the book. And that is in writing about abuse. Uh, that you experienced mm -hmm. at the hands of two neighbors. Um, I, 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 you know, there's so it's such a fundamental uh, experience to go through mm -hmm. such a such a one that can shape a person and one that is often erased as well uh, from being talked about. Men in particular do not talk about yeah. abuse. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, nobody I, likes to talk about it, but men in particular, we are, it's so emasculating that we are like, it's just so taboo, like, mm. you know, and, 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 and it's also not, it's also, it's, it's taboo because it's like, it's at the heart of masculinity, like mm. you're taking someone's manhood by doing mm -hmm. that. And so that's the taboo part. There's so much shame that comes with it. On the other hand, though, in our public discourse, men aren't allowed to be victims mm -hmm. of this particular crime, right? The, the, the narrative is that men are the, the victimizers and women are the victims, but actually one in six men have been abused before they become grownups. And the number for women are like one in four, but you know, but it's not a trivial number. If you do that based on the population of Canada, you know, let's say that's, let's say 50% of the population is men. That's, that's 15 million people roughly a mm -hmm. little bit more, but let's, let's round it out. Right. And, and my math, it, my math isn't stellar, but that's 12.5% of 15 million, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? So that's millions of people who, who have been, that's millions of people who've been abused and who this is part of their story. But for those dual reasons, the internal one and the climate of our society, we're not allowed to talk about it. You know, and I, and I feel that that's a terrible shame. Like I, I remember going to a, um, and, and it's controversial, apparently, because I remember going to a, um, a talk on 
you know, as, as I was writing the book, I was like, wow, I only know one writer. I need some writer friends. So I was following some people on Twitter and a bunch of the people I was following were doing a talk at the Metro Toronto Reference Library for the launch of a book of, of writers writing about sexual assault. And, and they had, and, and I mean, the first thing is they, they had one indigenous woman, but that was it for women of color on the stage. And they had a trans woman and they had absolutely no men. And I was kind of like, okay, well, I mean, if you want to say sexual assault, except for men, mm -hmm. but the truth is men are actually the biggest group <laughs> after women. And I mean, you can argue that we're not that vulnerable, but when we're children, we are, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. these are children. Like this isn't like grown men who can defend themselves. These are children. So um, anyway, sir, I'm sorry, I jumped in on your question, but the point, but I, I care very passionately about this subject because I feel like, um, you know, a lot of men are hurting and, and if we don't sort of figure out how to help men talk about these things and get treatment for these things, those men go on to be abusers. And so it's kind of, you know, when, when I see sort of my people in the feminist struggle who say, well, no, we shouldn't be talking about men in this, I kind of feel like it's self-defeating because I mean, a lot of those men that are sexually assaulting women were sexually assaulted themselves. And so it's like, you need to sort of treat both parts of the problem. But of course, the politics being what they are, I mean, we might both get in trouble for me just saying what I just said, but I mean, it's kind of facts, isn't it? Like I didn't make these facts up. These are very accessible facts on the internet. And, and like anybody can Google and find this. Um, you know, it, and, and, and someone's got to talk about it. And mm. so I just thought it was, for me, it's such a, a crucial part of everyone's life that's been abused as any survivor. It's a crucial part of your story. And so I, it was a delicate balance. I didn't want it to take over the book and be all about that, but I also wasn't going to sidestep it at all. Um, because that would be dishonest and it really wouldn't you know, there would be a big hole in the book if that if that's what happened. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. anyway, I'm sorry, you're going to ask a question. I, I think you've answered my question there. But I think, you know, you're, you're right, because the easy thing to do in a book like this might have been to avoid it entirely and to try to write around it. And, and you probably would have discovered in the process that it would have been impossible to do so. Uh, you know, you, you talk about the just the sheer work involved in writing a memoir versus writing, you know, your first book of fiction and how this one, uh, so much of the work is just the heavy lifting of, of writing a story like this. Um, mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, I, my, my question would, would have been, well, why, why, why was the time now to, to write about this or to share this? Um, but, uh, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, more. it's, it's part of the framework of my of my of my life. It's almost like that maybe maybe the 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 superhero in me was born coming to Canada and just having all of that stuff ripped away and having to figure it out. But prior to that, the dark shadows that that have haunted me and have been held me back and just wasted so much of what what 
what I would have liked to have been and done um, was born in that grass and that grass that that time, you know, and, and all the times after that as a child, right, where where I was abused, where it's it's kind of a, a it's a it's a robbing, it's a robbery, isn't it? It's a it's a it's a it's a it's an armed robbery. It's a larceny of 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 life energy, of future, of potential. You know, that's what I feel like it is because my life then becomes inhibited by these shackles that it's put on me. But then if I can overcome that and give it meaning, then my life regains that potential and reclaims that, 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 um, that energy. And so that's what the healing process has been for me. And, and that's really, and I couldn't tell the story of the book without that because you really don't, because really that, that's at the core of it. That's at the core of it. Like you can't, like so much of my be of the behavior I describe in the book, which I thought I thought it was like, oh yeah, you got abused. That's not a big deal. You don't need to think about that anymore. But when I look back and when I found out, it was like, whoa, most of your behavior as an adult fit textbook um, for survivors of childhood sexual abuse as as a man. Like there were so many things that I was just. I was just playing a role and I was like, no, that didn't affect me. I'm not even thinking about that. But, you know, the facts is, you know, you might be done with trauma, but trauma ain't done with you. Hmm. One of the things I've, I've been doing a lot of reading about is this concept of post-traumatic growth. I don't know how familiar you are with, with that as a concept, if you subscribe to it or not. But it rings a bell for me as you're talking about this quest of kind of putting together various shattered pieces in one. And, and post-traumatic growth is this idea of reconstructing a self, not necessarily in trying to put all the pieces back together exactly as they were before, but in uh, putting them back together and accepting that whatever comes out of it is something new perhaps, but, um, but it's a way of making whole and allowing and accepting change as part of that whole. You know, I, I guess it's in terms of accepting the whole story and not all of it. So I guess, you know, if you're looking at your life story, being able to look at it in its entirety and not just uh, in, and not omit the things that uh, that we'd rather forget about. Um, mm -hmm. What's what's your process been like in terms of the writing of this book in, in reliving uh, the events of your life and in, in sort of constructing your own narrative anew, um, looking at it yeah. again. Yeah. I mean, memory is, is a liar. Memory is kind of this, this record of, of our frailty. It's, we think of memory as a video camera, right? We just record things mm -hmm. and then we have that file. And if we ever want to remember, we just play, play it and it plays exactly as it was as a record of the, of the facts. In fact, how memory works is every time you remember, you reassemble it every time you remember. And, and of course your ego and your, your, your brain kind of edits as it goes because it wants to make you feel good and it wants you to avoid feeling bad. And so in writing a memoir, there's so many things that, that 
when I actually, you know, I did 250 hours of interviews before I started writing. And, and in that process, a lot of what I found was, um, was, was like stuff that was deleted, stuff that was invented, stuff that was maximized, stuff that was minimized. Or, or my favorite is the, uh, the the Vaseline on the mirror technique. Mm. It's where it's like, you know there's something there, but you've made it very fuzzy. So you can't quite see the sharp details of it. Um, and we do that to protect ourselves. So for me, a lot of the process of writing Saga Boy was reliving those memories, like putting myself right back into that position and, and feeling what it felt like. And, and that's hard, you know, that's hard. There's a lot of, sometimes I wrote 20, for every 20 minutes I wrote, I needed 40 to recover before I could write anymore. So when you talk about sexual abuse, like for me, that was a really hard thing to write. And, and, and at first I just breezed right through it. And then, you know, my editors were like, okay, if you're gonna write about this, you can't just breeze right through it. So I went back and I slowed it down but again, there's a delicate dance because I don't want it to take over the story. And so to your question, yeah, I absolutely believe in that. Like you can't go back to who you were or would have been before and this traumatic thing happened. Even you can't do that for any good thing that happened either. Like you, you can't go back. Life only moves one direction. And for me, I think a key piece is evicting the perpetrator. Whoever has done this is, to, is, is, is living rent-free in your brain and rent-free in your life. And, and we gotta get them out of there. And so it starts with not being able to even see it because you've blotted it out or you've minimized it or you've done something to it. Then you kind of relive it and it's like, oh wow, this is raw. This is like it. This is like a wound that never healed. It's raw. It's festering. It's it's ancient and fresh all at the same time. And 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 then you 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 can start sort of treating it, and you can start. And for me, it's not about denying. It's just about accepting and just going like, look, you know what? This is a thing that happens. It happened to a lot of people. If you put in men and women that, that this has happened to, it's like, it's like we're a majority. <laughs> if, we, if we started a political party, <laughs> we would always be in power, <laughs> you know? So, so and, and then I kind of moved through it like that, like just sort of understanding, hey, this is what happened to you. This is what was going on with those people. This is why no one was there to protect you. This is the impact that that's had on how you think about yourself. This is how it's warped and shifted how you think about yourself and relationships. This is how we're gonna, we're gonna sort of change that cycle. We're gonna change that story, that narrative that we're talk that we've learned to tell ourselves. And that's gonna take consistent effort and, and a lot of, a lot of just loving yourself. And just for me, I think that was the biggest thing. It's like, I didn't, when I read Saga Boy, I just think about me, little me, but even grown me. And I'm like, wow, like, I just want to give you a hug. If I knew mm -hmm. you right now, I would give you a hug and I would love you. And I would tell you 
it's going to be okay that you know what we're in this together and i don't care if no one else anywhere has your back i have your back from now until they until they close the casket and and it just fills me with sadness for myself and the loneliness that i had to walk through and a lot of it is about that is about rewalking that and and what you realize is that a lot of those sad memories when you re, when you reevaluate them are filled with courage filled with ingenuity filled with like determination and grit and and love and and generosity and you know what i mean like there's so much of it there but you don't see it when it happens because you just tell yourself the story that your memory wants to tell you and so for me it's just about going back and looking at that story and the most you know like the most famous sort of vaseline on the mirror moment in sagaboy is the incident on the bus in high school when i'm going i'm going to glenview park and i'm on the basketball team and we just lost the team we're supposed to beat and there's these two kids that are bullying everyone by flicking their air as we're, as we're um, coming back on the bus. And I'm already upset because we're supposed to win this game. And I took it seriously. Like, I'm always about the mission. And for me, the mission was basketball at that point. And so I'm upset. And these guys kept flicking my air, flicking my air, flicking my air. And eventually I just exploded at them. I threatened their lives. It's actually, I don't recommend threatening anybody, but as threats go, is it was very, um, it was very, <laughs> I deployed the full power of my rhetorical skills to threaten them and their mom and their dog and their goldfish. And, and, and my coaches called the police on me. Mm -hmm. And and so I blotted that out of the mirror. So I didn't want to see it. And um, and then when I was interviewing people for the book, I, I would always at the end say, is there anything we haven't talked about that you think is important? And my brother said, oh, there was that thing on the bus. And then my and then my, my stepmom said, yeah, there was something on the bus. But and they called the police. I talked to them. Nothing happened. And I'm like, oh boy, something happened on the bus. And I didn't remember a lot of the story. Mm. And then I talked to Benfoot, the same Benfoot, who I knew was sitting next to me when whatever happened on the bus happened. And he gave me this whole other perspective where he was like, you know what? Those guys bullied all of us all the time. And you were the first person to stand up for them. Everybody was cheering for you. And you know what else? Whose fault is it? Whose job is it to create a safe place for the people on that bus so that they don't get bullied? The mm. same coaches that call the cops on you. So actually, you know what? This is their fault. And you were just a kid standing up for yourself. And, and I cried, I wept, I wept, mm. I wept in that moment because the story that I had told myself about this incident this traumatic incident was that I was wrong. I lost my cool. I was kicked off the basketball team for it. No, I quit the basketball team slash was kicked off. There were all these ramifications and I carried that shame heavy, like a stone in my belly for 
for decades. And just having that one conversation unlocked it. And, and the story was really that, no, you know what? You stood up for all of us. You were so brave. We were all cheering for you. And, and, and those coaches that ratted you out, first of all, it's their job to figure out, to keep all of us safe. It's not the kid's job, it's their mm -hmm. job. And they let those guys bully us all the time because they were their favorites. And second of all, why didn't they even ask why you got so upset? They never asked, mm -hmm. they never asked. I was just the black kid who lost his, his mind. So you have to have the courage to relive it and to re-engage with it. And if you do, what I found was almost always, there is so much courage and compassion that's built in there. There's so much love and so much joy um, built in there. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And when you can reevaluate it along those lines, now this thing that was shameful to me, I look back on it and I'm like, you know what, dude, I, I question your methods, but good on you for, for, for standing up for yourself. I question your methods about like how you did it. We, we got to talk about that, but, but you know what? Fundamentally you were standing up for yourself and for others who couldn't stand up for themselves. So like good on you for that. And I'm proud of you. And so many times I look back on myself and things that I was ashamed of, I actually look back and go, whoa, actually, I didn't see it like that. I'm so, and, and you actually end up being proud of yourself for it. And so I feel like when I look back at being sexually abused that first time, which is the only real time I describe in the book, but it happened for years off and on for a couple of years. Um, that first time I came out of the bush and I turned around and I laughed at the guy. Mm -hmm. I laughed at him because there's a part of me that knew that he was the one who was wrong. And I knew that right away, right from the start, I understood that. And that certainty that I had about that never wavered. And, and I look back and I go, wow, that's a seven year old kid. <laughs> I'm like, you know, and suddenly I'm like, wow, like actually, what a great demonstration of defiance and courage and, and self-efficacy self in that moment, because really that was the only thing I had. That was the only thing I had. And, that's, and so first draft, yes. By the time you get to the fourth and fifth draft, it's just a thing that happened. And I think that that's what happens to these stories over mm -hmm. time. It just becomes a thing all the sting gets taken out of it. All the venom gets sucked out of it. And it just becomes a, a thing that happened. And, and, and there's so many positives that you can draw from it as opposed to it just being this weight weighing you down. Hmm. And, and to me, that's the healing. And that's the process of healing. That's a long story, but hmm. it, it's an important one. You know, I think there's... I, I could keep asking you questions for hours, but I want to uh, to put a bow on this uh, shortly. <laughs> if if maybe a good place to wrap up is in thinking about a quote, I'll paraphrase, and perhaps you can correct me on it. But the notion that you can only ever 
become who you already were uh, or who you always mm -hmm. were. Um, yeah. could, could you reflect on that just a little bit? Yeah, it's so funny. Just today I was, uh, a friend was talking to me and, and she was saying how, you know, this book has brought a lot of people back into my life because they see, they see the book, they, they see, they recognize it's me. They read the book, they reach out. And, and this person that I'd known maybe 15 years ago, and, and she's like, you know, her life has just changed a lot. And, and, and she was like, back then I thought I was tough, but I was actually just angry because I was too scared to be myself. And and what I and I think you know your question is is related to what I said to her, which is that you know we think that we think that growing older and maturing and being comfortable in our skin and coming into our power involves becoming a new person, mm -hmm. but in fact it it involves becoming comfortable with the person that we always were, and. And that's what I believe. And that's the great lesson of, of the book, I think, because the best parts of me are still that little boy that was a little bit, that was clever, that was hardened, hard-headed, and, and a little crazy. Well, I, I won't use that word. Now, a, a little bit unbalanced, a little unstable, a little unconventional. That kid is still is still the best part of me. It's still the part of me that 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 gives me life and that inspires me and that gets me up in the morning and 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 really the journey of of reclaiming myself has been learning how to get to know that person and to love that person. And and that's the real healing. And when you can get to that place where you can celebrate this person you've always been suddenly i feel like life becomes life becomes clear and beautiful and and it and it becomes really easy for you to access compassion for mm. others and and courage for the things you need to do in your daily life and it be, and and clarity you know it gives you a ton of clarity about hey you know what i i don't have to pretend to be what you need me to be i'm good that sense of I'm good, you know, I'm safe, I'm okay. Cause I got, you know, cause there's this person in here and all the love that little Tony never had, all the safety and protection that he never had, all the, 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 the advocacy that those coaches didn't give me on that bus, I can give it to myself now. And when you get to that place and you just feel safe and you just feel okay, just being able to say, I'm good. I'm going to be okay. That seems so cliche and so obvious, but but that's actually all really that I've ever been missing is that their mom and dad aren't here. Grandma's gone. Right? So there's no safety. There's no safety. There's no sense of like, hey, you're good. You're good. You're okay. You got love. You got food. You got somebody. You got somebody that's always going to be there with you. And I think that that process of coming into your power and your own skin involves being able to claim that and just go, look, I know who I've always been. This little kid, this little boy, Tony. And in my head, 
he's always in the driver's seat and he and he's sitting with his his guava wood scepter and his crown made of hibiscus flowers and and he's still running the show and and i'm happy to be here with him mm. and that to me is is what my evolution and my healing has been and i can't wait for the next chapter mm. you know thinking about superheroes as we were talking about before comic book heroes and someone like julius caesar you know talk about being undefeated having that uh that peace to be like i'm okay yeah and that's all that's all you know raising kids is about we just want to give them a sense of safety so that they can they can be themselves That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you're in Canada, Sagaboy is out now. Pick it up from your local bookstore or ask your library to get a copy. If you're in the States, it's coming in September from Milkweed Editions. You can pre-order it now. If you enjoyed the show, do me a favor. Hit subscribe, leave a rating and review, and best of all, tell someone else about it. Send them a link to the episode. If you want to get in touch a few ways you can, you can send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow along on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Martin underscore Bauman. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle. Off the album, you um, I'll ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was A Story Untold. See you next time. <laughs>